We've been working through our series called To the Ends of the Earth. Uh, The purpose of the book of Acts is reflected uh, in Jesus' words to the apostles back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, but you, Jesus' words, but you to the apostles will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. As we've said for as long as we've been working in this series, that's the pattern that was established for the book of Acts. That they would be witnessing in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the gospel would be spreading to the ends of the earth. Paul, last time we were in the book of Acts, was in the midst of Ephesus. He ministered in the city for three years. At the end of this time, or I'm going to give you a quick, kind of abbreviated part of the couple chapters we're skipping over, at the end of this time, there was a riot. Uh, Paul's ministry had caused some local designers, shop makers, to get upset because their trade was being threatened. And so there was a riot in the city And all of a sudden, they rush into the theater, and for over two hours, the text tells us, they screamed out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they were chanting this. Finally, someone stands up and says, listen, we got to stop this. The Romans are going to get upset, and everybody disbanded. And so Paul is in the midst of traveling. I've showed you this map before. He started in in the city of Antioch over here, and he traveled through Galatia, um, traveling, and he's in Ephesus right now, but he's moving up kind of the coastline here, and he ends up in Troas, planning to go over to Macedonia up here in the left top and continue to minister, plant churches, encourage the churches that are already established, and, and he's staying there for about seven days, the text tells us. This is in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And it's his last day there. He's preaching for so long, it gets late. Eutychus is up in a window, it tells us, and he falls out of the window and dies. Now, when you're preaching, that is not something you want to have happen. I've seen people nodding off before. I have the best perspective on all of y'all. I've seen people nodding off before, but don't go and sit in an upper window. That's a bad idea. But I'm guessing it was probably so crowded that that was where he had the chance. He could see the best and he could get the best view. It was also probably hot up there. The higher you go, the hotter it is. And he just started dozing off and all of a sudden he falls out, boom, and he dies. But the text tells us that, I'll start in in verse 9, middle of verse 9. It says, and being overcome, chapter 20, verse 9, and being overcome by sleep, again, some of y'all have been overcome by sleep before, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul, verse 10, went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them 
a long while. He'd already conversed with them a long while. Until daybreak, and so he departed. This is what Paul's ministry looks like. Now, if I preach and somebody dies and they come back to life, I don't think I'm going to continue. I think that, that's going to be the, the primary, like, oh man, okay, let's just rejoice over that. Okay, I'm done now. <laughs> but Paul continues to converse with them a long while. But Paul's continuing to minister in some of these cities, preaching the gospel, encouraging the churches. But Paul's focus, he wants to go to Rome. He knows he needs to go to Jerusalem, so that's where he's kind of heading back to. But he's also has the focus on Rome, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Why? Because Paul's mission was given to him through Jesus Christ. He wasn't there with the apostles in the upper room back in Acts 1.8, but he was given the mission later on to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And for them, as a group, the ends of the earth was Rome. And Paul says, I have a laser sight on that goal. I'm going to Rome because for them, that's the ends of the earth. For them, that would be accomplishing the mission that Jesus gave them. And so Paul, hurrying back, he's going back and he stops in Miletus, which is right here. And he sends to the, the church in Ephesus to send their leaders so that he can speak with them because he realizes he may not see them again. And that's where our text picks up today. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That I may finish my course, Paul's saying, I want to go to Rome. Finish the ministry that Jesus gave to me. Verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance 
among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that he that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul's reviewing the time that he had spent with the Ephesians. I, I read about Paul and his time and just his reflection here with the people from the church of Ephesus, and I can't help but see a man who was dedicated, who was determined in his life. I think Paul's testimony of living a determined life can be an example for us this morning as well. If you look up the word determined, and I did so in dictionary.com, it says determined means firmly set in one's decision or course of action, especially with the aim of achieving a particular goal. Did Paul have a particular goal? He had a particular goal that was given to him by Jesus Christ. A mission, a ministry. And he was firmly set in his decision and his course of action. Now that course of action would not play out probably how he hoped it would. Because as he heads into Jerusalem, he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. We read the example of Paul here in Acts chapter 20, and there are many others that I would also say lived a determined life. But there is one example that popped into my mind as I was reading through this text and thinking about it that's more of a current example, and that is of Billy Graham, a man who lived his life much like Paul constantly preaching and speaking the gospel wherever he was. Some remarks I, I read online about it. It says, Mr. Graham preached the gospel to more people in live audiences than anyone else in history. Nearly 215 million people in more than 185 countries and territories. He preached in remote African villages and into the heart of New York City. He ministered to heads of state and also simple living bushmen of Australia. His life mission was to follow the command given by Jesus. Acts, we read that already. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's how Billy Graham lived his life. Because he recognized that the gospel needed to be preached everywhere and anywhere. So what does it look like to live a determined life like these two men, Paul or Billy Graham? First, a determined life serves God wholeheartedly. Serves God wholeheartedly. Paul reminds the elders of his mission work that he had done there with them in Asia. He lists his mindset that he was serving them with humility and tears, verse 19. 
He was bold in his proclamation. He didn't shrink from speaking the truth anytime he had an opportunity. He mentions his method of teaching publicly, teaching house to house, wherever he was, he was trying to teach the gospel. He also mes- mentions, he reminds them of the message that he was continually preaching to them of repentance towards God and of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul was reminding them of what God had enabled him to be doing. Paul had come a long way from Acts chapter 8 and 9, where he was persecuting Christians. And then when God called him, he begins witnessing throughout the Roman world to everyone who needed to hear about salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's much like he reminds the church in the book of Ephesians to serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. Serve wholeheartedly. So what does it look like to serve God wholeheartedly today? What does that look like for us? Because not all of us are in full-time paid ministry. So what does it look like to serve God where you live, where you work, where you play, where you shop? What does it look like for that? Well, there's several verses that came to mind. Psalm 100 verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. There should be gladness in our service. What does it look like to serve God wholeheartedly? Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus said to him, the man who was questioning him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What does it look like? Wholehearted service. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving God with all that you are. In the Jewish culture, and that was the way to say your whole self. Love God with your flesh and your bones and your mind and your spirit. I, I don't know other ways to say it, but love God with all that you are. What does it look like to serve God wholeheartedly? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In the context, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about eating food sacrificed to idols or not eating food sacrificed to idols. And so he's talking about eating and drinking, but he says, whatever you do, do all. What is all? Everything. He doesn't say do some things to the glory of God. Do a couple of things. Or just, just when you eat and drink, do that to the glory of God. When you come into this building, do it for God's glory. He doesn't limit it. He says do all to the glory of God. So what does it look like to serve God wholeheartedly? Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
Again, that word all. Do all to the glory of God. You are serving the Lord Christ. uh, There's a common theme in all of these verses, and that's that no matter what you're doing, whether you're bagging groceries, there's not many stores that do that anymore, but whether you're bagging groceries or checking people out, whether you're working at a school, whether you're a student at school, whether you're in the healthcare industry, whether you're driving your car down the highway, whether you're working in a factory, whether you're driving your tractor through the field or your combine right now, whatever it is, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. As Christians, our purpose is to turn, to shift our focus from ourselves onto Christ. Paul reminds us that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, God is the reason you are doing those things. You serve him wholeheartedly. You live your life in service to God because he's supplying every breath and every need for us. We recognize that as Christians. And that's why we can serve him wholeheartedly. Secondly, A determined life recognizes the goal and counts the cost. Recognizes the goal and counts the cost. Paul shifts his focus in the text here from kind of his current or his past experience into what he's going into, into what's about to happen. And the Holy Spirit had prepared Paul. He says that he was learning from, uh, he's going into Jerusalem. And he recognizes what's going to happen. Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. This has been happening ever since Acts 9 when he was first called. Jesus, talking to Ananias, he told him to go to Paul. And Ananias was a little worried because I have heard about that, Paul. I've heard that he's persecuting Christians. He's just going to do that to me. But Jesus says this to Ananias, for I will show him. Jesus says, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that's what Paul knew. He understood that he was going to suffer, but he didn't know what. He knew he wasn't going to have a life of ease. In the next chapter, in chapter 21, There's a prophet named Agabus. And the the text says, and coming to us, Agabus, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He's preparing Paul for what's going to happen for his life. That there's going to be suffering. But Paul was not concerned about the cost of following Jesus Christ. Even if it cost him his life, and it eventually would cost Paul his life, Paul endured it all because of the surpassing, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27, 
He, he lists some of the sufferings that he endured. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Whew! That's a list. It's a list just talking about it, let alone having to experience it like Paul did. But what does Paul say? The next chapter, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because in all of this stuff that's happened, Paul counted recognized the goal that was there, and he counted the cost. As Christians in America, we have freedom of religion. It's one of the things we're blessed with. We're allowed to come here to church on a Sunday morning. We're allowed to evangelize family members and co-workers. We're allowed to live our Christian life and We can carry this book publicly wherever we go. We could carry this with us. I I don't have my phone on me, but many of us carry a Bible with us 24-7 because we have a phone right here or in your pocket or wherever. We have our Bible, but in many countries, ones that are in color on the screen, in many countries, Christians are persecuted from extreme persecution just high persecution. Many countries, Christians are being persecuted for what they believe. And believe me, they recognize the goal and they count the cost. I regular re- regularly read stories, and if you're not in the habit of doing this, it gives you a good perspective on the rest of the world and what Christians are enduring. I regularly read stories of Christians who are being persecuted. Uh, there's a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, it's free. You can subscribe online. They send it to you on a monthly basis. It has stories of persecuted Christians, what they're experiencing, what they're going through, how they're living their life for Christ despite having to live in underground churches. They're still evangelizing. They're still preaching the gospel even in light of the persecution that they face. The amazing thing about those who suffer that type of persecution is that they realize the cost, but they also recognize that it doesn't even compare to the greatness of the promises that they're given through Jesus Christ. In the book of James, James was writing to dispersed Jewish Christians who were facing some persecution, and he said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What is the purpose? What is the goal? goal is the crown of life. It's been promised to us. As Christians, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit has sealed us 
It's like a king would take off his signet ring and they would pour hot wax on a letter and he would stamp that, saying, that is my endorsement, that is my approval, that is, this is my message. In the same way, the promises of God have been given to us and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is a guarantee in our lives of what is to come, that we will receive the crown of life. And James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In the midst of persecution, when he's, he's stood the test, when he's endured, Third, a determined life guards the faith. Paul tells them, pay careful attention. I put dot, dot, dot because he says some stuff. But he says, pay careful attention to care for the church of God. So how do you pay careful attention to care for the church of God? First, defending it against outward attacks. Paul says there's going to be wolves that come in and try to disband the church, to try to discourage you, defend it against outward attacks. Secondly, he says, protect it from internally those who twist God's word. Protect it from those who twist God's word. And then he, I think it involves being students of God's word. He says, verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Being students of God's word. We are guarding the faith when we go to the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation to seek to learn and apply what his word says for our lives. It means to understand what we're reading here in the book of Acts based on everything that's come before it. We don't just read a verse and say, okay, I'm going to take this verse out here and I'm going to put it here because it's the best verse ever. We do that sometimes. But we say this verse has a context in the chapter, this verse has a context in the book, this book has a context in the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament. A lot of the things that happen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the conversations that go on after that in the epistles that Paul and Peter and James and John all write, are all based on Genesis to Jesus' time. And so we can't take these things out of context. We have to recognize that the whole Bible is important. It means we have to understand that the entirety of the Bible is God's redemptive story for a people who are lost in their wickedness and can only be saved through God's Son, Jesus Christ. We don't plan this stuff, but it happens quite often here at the church. The front of your bulletins is, is the picture, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. 
the kids were here, they'd be singing. Some of you are singing along anyways. But, uh, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Not part of the B-I-B-L-E. The entire book of the Bible. That's why Bible memory is important. Because they're memorizing verses, not just in the New Testament, but they're memorizing entire parts of the Bible at times. Recognizing that it's through the whole Bible. We guard the faith by proclaiming the truths of God's word, the truths like the gospel. We guard the faith by recognizing and correcting errors from inside and outside, and we defend God's word that it's authoritative, that it's God who said it and he has the ultimate authority, that it's inerrant, that means it's without error, that it's true, that it's infallible, that it's trustworthy. Practically speaking, what does that mean for us as a congregation today though? It means that we hold each other accountable. It means that I am accountable to you and you are accountable to me and you're accountable to each other. So when I get up here on a Sunday morning and I say something, if I say something that doesn't accord with the word of God, I expect some of you to come to me and say, I don't think you were right up there. That might not be a fun conversation for you to come and do. But that's part of our membership here our body, we say we're going to hold each other accountable to what God's word says. And the same thing goes for us as a body. If you see each other not acting out according to what God's word says we should be doing, you're to hold each other accountable. That's guarding the faith. That's keeping the wolves from the outside. That's protecting from those who twist the word of God. And that happens sometimes. Sometimes it's accidental. We say something and we say it before we were able to think and process it. Like, Oops, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. But that's part of guarding the faith and holding each other accountable. Finally, a determined life graciously gives. Paul says in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. But Paul's emphasis is not about finances, even though it may seem like that. Paul's talking about not being a burden on anyone as he was living a life of service. One commentary I read said, in the context, Paul uses this saying to refer not to generosity with one's material goods, but to sacrificial generosity with one's life. What we can give is not always about our finances. We have time, we have talents, we have abilities, we have gifts. We have all sorts of things that we can give of our lives and not be burdens to others. It's much like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He doesn't say I became a burden to all. He said I made myself a servant to all. That I was serving all. In the context, he said to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the, to the Greeks, I became like a Greek. To all people, I 
tried to become all things, not in a sinful way, but being as Christ-like as he could, he, he was making himself a servant to all that he might be able to evangelize them, that he might be able to witness to them. And the only way we're able to do that, or the only way we're able to be a servant of all is because of Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We're able to be a servant of all because Jesus Christ, who was rich, made himself poor. The book of Philippians says, for he became a servant. He humbled himself in obedience to God. It's out of that richness of Christ that we're able to serve others. And sometimes that's physically. Serving, giving, meeting needs. Sometimes that's spiritually. Many of you have been praying for me. That's spiritually encouraging. Sometimes it's emotionally. We need people to be able to lean on and talk with. In the early church in Acts chapter 2, we read this before, but Acts chapter 2 verse 45, there was a fellowship that they had among the believers that says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's just this giving mentality. And so they were graciously giving to one another. Paul is reminding the Ephesian leaders of the pattern that he set for other Christians to emulate, to replicate, to copy. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians something bold. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So here's my question for us this morning. Am I living a determined life that others see as an example to follow? Am I living a determined life that others see as an example to follow? Paul lists what he's going to be going through. His time that he was in Ephesians and he's heading to Jerusalem and that he's praying for the churches and Asking them to guard the faith. So am I serving God wholeheartedly? Am I recognizing the goal and counting the cost? Am I guarding the faith and am I graciously giving? I want you to read verse 18 of chapter 20 with me again. It says, when they came to him... He said to them, what's his first line? You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. He's living a determined life that he says boldly, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Live a determined life worthy of being copied. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the example of men who 
seek to follow you. Men who by no means were perfect. Paul had his weaknesses. Billy Graham had his. But God, we're trying to be mirrors to your son. Who came in the form of a man who was tempted and pressed and tried, persecuted for the message that you gave him to bring. And then he was crucified, even though he was pure, even though he was holy, he was sinless, he was killed so that our sins would go to the cross with him, so that our sins would be paid for and we could have eternal life. Father, help us to look to your Son as the ultimate image for us to copy, to live a determined life that takes the focus off of ourselves and looks to you on a daily basis no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're doing, no matter what actions we're taking that we're glorifying you through those things. God, help us to love you and follow you and serve you with all that we are. God, we just pray this in your son's name. Amen.